we're, we're still not treating it like a crisis because uh, it's being felt unevenly. For some people, it is a crisis. It's very real. And for others, they don't feel it at all. And in fact, for some people, it's the best thing that ever financially happened to them. Welcome to the Rising Economy podcast produced by South Island Prosperity Partnership. This series features leading thinkers and change makers giving bold insights about the key concerns of our time. This ranges from economic trends to workforce changes, the housing crisis, and the factors impacting cities and our region. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of the Rising Economy podcast, brought to you by South Island Prosperity Partnership. I'm Carrie Slavens, and I'll be your moderator for today's episode, Untangling the Housing Crisis from Scarcity to Solutions. This morning, we are broadcasting from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen people, today known as the Esquimalt and Songhees Nations, and we are very grateful for the welcome. This new Rising Economy podcast um, is our way, is part of a series that is our way of keeping important conversations about our economy going all year round, leading up to our annual Rising Economy conference, entering its fourth year. So stay tuned for our conference dates. Today, we'll explore the perfect storm that led to today's housing crisis, from supply chain issues to inflation, high land prices, and bureaucracy. And we're talking to some people with bold ideas for solving the crisis and understanding it. After our panel, we'll have time for a Q&A session. So please enter your questions in the Zoom Q&A. And just a note, this session is being recorded. And now I'll ask our panelists to turn on their cameras and I will introduce you. So first up is Julian West. Julian is owner of Urban Thrive, a Victoria-based social enterprise development company specializing in car-free housing. He has an undergraduate degree in economics from Vancouver Island University. He launched Urban Thrive after seven years of working with the BC government um, to be a catalyst for creating vibrant, sustainable, and inclusive neighborhoods across Greater Victoria. Welcome, Julian. Kathy Witcher is Executive Director of the Urban Development Institute Capital Region. With over 30 years of experience in urban planning and development management, Kathy is responsible for the direction, growth, and management of UDI Capital Region, the voice of the development community in this region. And Kathy was also previously president of the Downtown Victoria Business Association. Last but not least, Diana Gibson is Executive Director of the Community Social Planning Council. Diana has worked nationally and globally leading research and community development initiatives aimed at changing the policy context and providing critical evidence on the ground to create a more just, sustainable society. Diana is a research advisor for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and a distinguished research fellow of the University of Alberta's Parkland Institute. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here today. In a recent Times colonist column, Les Lane wrote, If all the people talking about the housing crisis this week had been given hammers instead of microphones, we could have a dozen fourplexes in Fairfield framed in by now. Well, perhaps oversimplified, Lane's comments do reflect people's frustration with the perceived inability of one person or one organization or one government to solve the the region's housing shortage. so, um, So for today's session, we want to look at how the demand for housing so dramatically outstrips supply, what's blocking and slowing solutions, and where do we go for here? What is really possible? 
So we know the housing situation is bad, and we'll get deeper into that. But I want to start by asking each of you how you think we got into this tangle. What do you see as the factors that are leading to this housing crisis, which is by no means, I know, unique to Victoria? Were the warning signs there all along, or were they just ignored, or were we just so compelled by, you know, the housing market? So I'm going to start with Julie, and what's your perspective as a small-scale developer and social entrepreneur? Thanks, Carrie. Um, I love that quote because it, it's it's so true. We've all heard so much talk about the housing crisis for so long, and um, it just it's felt like we've had so little so little tangible action, and we're we're not seeing it quite yet. But to provide a little bit of that background from my perspective, the housing and affordability and supply crisis has been decades in the making. Uh, and there's certainly no one cause. Um, and I think Diana's probably going to talk a little bit about sort of the historic divestments in rental and social housing, which has basically completely removed a whole segment of the market for decades. But at a very fundamental level, Victoria has had a growing population and a growing economy for a long time. And now we are this globally influential economy. We're punching way above our weight in sectors like technology, but our housing policies haven't evolved over, over that period, and they haven't kept up with our needs. Still, the vast majority of developed land in our region is low-density, uh, single-detached housing. And instead of gradually sort of raising the density across our region over time as the region has grown, uh, we've essentially frozen most of that, that land sort of in time. And the development that has happened, we've tried to cram it into really small geographic areas like downtown and bigger bigger buildings and into new suburban developments uh, in what was natural land otherwise. So this is both environmentally unsustainable, but also just it's, it's so constrained. It hasn't allowed us to keep up with uh, our housing needs. Uh, and like I said, we're still ignoring like 90% of, of the land area. And so much has changed over the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and we just, we haven't been nimble. We haven't adapted. We haven't evolved with that. Mm -hmm. um, and at first this was expressed as just rising prices and rents. And um, people grumbled about it at first, but it was manageable. But now that the bottom end of, of house prices and rent is so high that this equilibrium is being expressed as homelessness as people just leaving the region altogether, especially families. We're having an exodus of families, uh, labor shortages uh, in our businesses, and just a huge portion of the population like struggling with just the basic cost of living. Uh, and despite all that, and despite all the talk and all the microphones that are out there, like I'm still not seeing um, it being treated like a crisis. And, and it is a crisis, but we're not quite treating it that, like that. Mm -hmm. That said, I do see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I am optimistic about where we're going. Um, I'm certainly trying to do my part to be part of the solution. So I'm glad the second half of this conversation is about solutions. Uh, but it is, it has taken an awfully long time for us to get serious. And I think we're, I think, uh, sort of at a turning point. Okay, great. Thanks, Julian. Uh, Kathy, I'm going to turn to you. Your organization, UDI Capital Region, is the voice of the development industry in this region. How did the housing situation get so tangled over time? What are you hearing from your members? Um, just ditto what Julian just said. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I mean, a lot of points that Julian uh, uh, pointed out were is exactly where I would go with my conversation as well. Um, and like he said, Diana is going to uh, go into more of the, the uh, historical piece of 
programs that existed back in the 70s that created rental housing um, that stopped. And then there was no rental housing built in the in the region here up until about maybe 10, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, max. Um, so, you know, it's it's just been a, a challenge uh, across the, the board as to what's been going on, whether it's been, um, you know, more migration coming into the country, um, no program set up to to bring in the housing that is is necessary. Um, and I also think one of the major problems is um, with the different levels of government not working together, creating separate policies that didn't didn't kind of jive with each other, um, which causes rift at trying to get through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's a whole host of, and then of course recently, you know, we've had you know the pandemic and and then war, and that's just added layer upon layer of, of difficulty across the across the industry. And and Kathy, it's been it's expensive to build, isn't it? I yes. Mean, yeah. Increasingly expensive. You you've talked about um, supply chain issues. I know the cost of materials has gone up. So developers are facing all kinds of pressures. I would imagine from all sides, as well as the pressure to build, build, build. Absolutely. Yeah. Just one. I mean, during the pandemic, you know, the the um, uh, manufacturing kind of slowed down because of the pandemic um, and then with the war. Um, but, and, you know, lumber wood went crazy. It has come down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem right now is cement, is concrete. And I've been hearing uh, in the industry that, that developers are now paying up to $500 a square foot for concrete and sometimes more. So wow. that has just, like just skyrocketed, just like unbelievably high. So that is a huge, a huge problem. Um, and less and less wood frame buildings are being built um, and will be less will be built because of the new uh, BC building code that's coming in mm-hmm. that restricts uh, development on certain areas on the island here in particular because of the seismic problems that we're going to have. So, yeah, there it just there's a whole host of, of issues coming in. It is interesting because, you know, I was reading about the housing crisis in the United States after World War Two, when everybody was coming back from Europe and everywhere. And of course, they just launched into a massive um, build um, crisis plan and built all of this housing. Now, it wasn't probably most of it probably wasn't quality housing that we have today, but it's certainly put people in homes. And I kept saying, well, why can't we do that now? But then I started thinking about the cost of things now, um, you know, and just how we're facing so many different things um, than they faced then. But my question still is, going back to Julian's point, why isn't this treated more like a crisis? Um, can, can, I, can, I ju- can, can I jump on that comment uh, really quick? Um, like that's that that's 100 percent right. And I think about that example as well. Like that is taking a crisis seriously. Uh, and we have not had that kind of response yet. And, uh, yes, it would be challenge, challenging because we have material and labor shortages and stuff, but that's just that, like, that would be part of the crisis response. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, let's get like talented trades in here to be able to build these things. And you know what? Like, probably we're going to be focusing on like the, the non-market ha- housing first. 
uh, if we're going to be bringing in trades from other jurisdictions and stuff like that. But like, that's the kind of like seriousness that we need. And as an example, like I have a public hearing for a housing project I have later tonight. And it took me one year to get this date. I've been done the project, ready to go, waiting for like the green light to, to say yes for one year. That's how long it's going to take me to build the homes. It's taking right. me more to get a date than, than to build them. Right. Yeah. Like, like if Holy. as a base, as a baseline, it should take less time to approve a housing project than it should take to build it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and until like we hit that like bare minimum, like, like we're not taking it seriously. Right. And so, um, Diane, I'm going to, you lead Victoria uh, Community Social Planning Council, and one of your key areas is housing affordability, which includes best practices for municipal governments, tracking trends, developing innovative solutions. So where, from your perspective, did we, this all start going off the rails? Um, yeah, there, I mean, I think a lot of the pieces of the puzzle are here in the conversation already. Um, certainly, uh, the the turning point really in Canada was, um, and internationally, it was fairly consistent that the federal government in 1993 literally stated that they were going to get out of the business of creating housing. Um, and it was a marked change from previous decades where the federal government had directly financed about 20,000 units of social housing per year. Um, and then in the, um, so in the 60s, that was direct public built. In the 70s and 80s, it was sort of nonprofit and co-op. But it was non-market housing investment that was building affordable housing and purpose-built rental housing that filled out the market with the, with the additional stock. Um, so with that housing austerity that was imposed, then the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation shifted over to really being not a home builder, but a mortgage insurer. And previously, they had been more of a home builder and more, more directly um, engaged in ensuring that we had that balanced supply. Um, so there were contributing factors. Additionally, of course, um, uh, the the uh, low interest rates um, and um, and and were you know as part of the factor of that shift to an investment oriented housing approach. Uh, and then, of course, as Julia mentioned, that exclusionary zoning and low density approach in municipalities locked us into sort of single family home zoning. And really, there was a, a system of, of municipal policy implemented fairly consistently, except for Montreal. Quebec, Quebec seems to have bypassed a little bit of this and really had a little bit more of a balanced supply and non-market housing approach. But um, it, it, here, municipalities really shifted to making it very difficult to build anything other than a single family home uh, and really creating these challenges around approvals and hearings and processes that delay uh, uh, anything that builds more density and makes it a lot more costly. And as we know, you know, the nonprofit housing providers have a really clear statement out on what drives cost in building housing um, and, and delay uh, in the approvals process is a cost factor when you're, when you're, when you've got investment, um, and you're and you're you're in the process of, of getting a home built. A year of delay on an approval is direct cost to the bottom line, and that's going to affect the affordability of those units. Um, so you know that that there's certainly some low hanging fruit for us on um, municipal policy um, for changing that. And some you know there's been some allusion here to sort of lack of action. There has been action, and as Julian said, I think we are closing in on a turning point. But I agree with Julian that we are definitely not seeing governments treat it like a crisis. They, they talk about a crisis, 
at all levels of government, but really the the, the lack of investment. We were, we were building 20,000 units federally, not let alone all of the, the, the tens of thousands of units that were being built provincially as well. Um, that gap, you know, over decades has meant that the shortfall, um, you know, now Canada it has the, the lowest housing stock per population of the G7. Like all of the G7 countries, we have less housing per capita than any of them. So that means we've got a long way to go to play catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that and, and BC, of course, is the worst. BC now has some is, is in, in the census data this fall. We found that the BC was the most unaffordable province in the country for housing. So um, so this does uh, need to be treated like a crisis. And as Julian mentioned, it has been decades in the coming. So it's not something we can fix immediately. We have seen a turning point in that the provincial government has stepped up with things like the protection of existing housing stock fund. It's small compared to what it needs to be. Um, but it's starting, um, and the, the federal government has the, the accelerator fund coming out that's that's been launched, the, the um, rapid housing initiative. Um, but these are, you know, compared to the amount of investment we need to balance the supply in the market, they're a drop in the bucket. And we're starting to see a turning at the municipal level with things like um, um, the missing middle housing in Victoria, BC, or the Senate's just introduced a, a, an apartments and, and sort of dwellings policy, mm-hmm. but we're not seeing those actually streamline approvals yet. And Julian can maybe speak to that later, that although there's there's been a bit of movement, the effect of actually opening up and streamlining applications to reduce that cost of delay isn't there yet. Okay, well, that's, um, I mean, you know, the whole thing to me, for looking at it as a layperson, seems like a Gordian knot that we're trying to untangle and figure out what to do. BC Housing Minister Ravi Kallen recently said the challenge, quite frankly, feels like a giant mountain to climb. So his government's response was to launch the Homes for People strategy aimed at unlocking more homes faster, delivering better, more affordable homes, helping those in the greatest need, creating a housing market for people, not speculators. Homes for People is the provincial government's response, but there are multiple levels of government, and you've all already touched on this a bit. And that means multiple layers of policy that, Kathy, as you told me yesterday, don't always mesh. So, Kathy, I'm going to start with you. I know UDI keeps a close eye on policy. Uh, so what are some examples of the issues this lack of coordination causes, and where do we need to go? Any Any thoughts about solutions, streamlining? Well, as Julian pointed out, there, you know, there are some things coming down the pipe. So with the province bringing in their announcements, um, I know that some of the municipalities are holding off on initiatives, policy initiatives that they had started working on because of the announcement from the province. Um, The province will be bringing in um, whatever they're going to announce in the fall. So everybody's kind of, kind of waiting around. Um, some, some of the difficulty, one of the difficulties that, that we're having right now, and, um, you know, don't get me wrong, UDI, the industry recognizes that we're in a climate crisis as well. Yeah. Um, but, and we've got step code that was brought in that, you know, development has really stepped up to, to bring in. Um, but the government has also brought in a, a zero carbon, um, and they have targets, the, the province set targets. But for some re- reason, the municipalities decided that they need, needed to beat the targets of the province and have, you know, in, or lessened their timing. Um, 
so that they will be bringing in the zero carbon faster. And it's it's just all these different layers of of policy that that keep um, it just it just adds upon cost upon cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but this the zero carbon is asking for electrification, and the problem is that BC Hydro um, doesn't have the capacity right now or the capability actually mm-hmm. um they they may in certain areas have the capacity uh they don't have the infrastructure so they're kind of putting the cart before the horse they're asking for all this electrification but the bc hydro can't provide it yet because they don't have the they don't have the infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, so it, it's it, it really is it's a quagmire of, of uh yeah. issues that are going on and it, you know, there's that old fable about, uh, you know, the, the wise men, um, you know, um, who can't see, um, touching, you know, parts of an elephant and, um, trying to figure out what kind of animal. But if you touch a back leg, it's very different from touching the head or the trunk. So you never get the big picture of anything. Um, and it seems to be that's what we're lacking, um, is how to bring those pieces together. Yeah, and I'm I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't be going in that direction because we absolutely have to go in that direction. I just think that um, you know the industry needs some time to catch up mm-hmm. to to, and that's why the province sets those timing goals so that the, the industry can catch up and and uh, with the supply chain, you know, heat pumps. There are some heat pumps that's taking 16 months waiting for them. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just a matter of, of the industry having time to, to catch up to all the changes that are being put in front of us. Okay, so that's interesting. So, Diana, from your perspective and the work you do, how can these layers of government work together more efficiently to create policies that mesh or at least don't clash in such a big way? Uh, well, there's... Um I think that there's some interesting uh, things happening around the provincial and municipal levels of jurisdiction because, you know, as I mentioned, that there was that tendency to do exclusionary zoning and to make it difficult to build uh, more density, as Julie was alluding to. Um, and also, you know, municipal policies, provincial policies are affecting land value, which is the biggest driver of affordability. Um, and so in some ways, the, the province is starting to step in and said, well, let the municipalities lead where they're willing to lead and where they're not, we're going to impose policy. And this is something that's been happening in jurisdictions in the U.S. as well, where you have municipalities that are very beholden, you know, small municipalities with people elected who are very beholden to the people that are there, um, which privileges them over often rental and um, and, and new homeowner or, or, or rental um, tenants. Uh, then they're beholden to that for their elections. It becomes very difficult for them to change zoning, and you do see a lot of reaction against zoning at the local level. So, the, the, so higher levels of government are stepping in where they're able to more uh, effectively change policy, um, mm-hmm. but letting municipalities lead. And I think that's an interesting approach that's been taken in many jurisdictions, uh, like I said, elsewhere, where there's um, challenges at the local level for making significant policy uh, advances uh, without political risk. And um, so, well, I think it's interesting that that tension's there. Uh, and so collaboration isn't necessarily always the approach we need for problem solving this Gordian knot. Sometimes difficult decisions are going to be made, need to be made by governments um, that uh, aren't necessarily going to be politically um, uh, favorable at the local level. Uh, so I think the, 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 the boldness to be able to make difficult decisions, uh, particularly around things like zoning and density to enable uh, density to happen 
um, is going to be something that that needs less cooperation and more bold vision. Um, and I think, um, but I think cooperation uh, around leveraging funding, because we know municipal governments are faced really with a lot of the challenges. You know, we we run the rent bank for the region, and we're seeing households at higher and higher income levels coming in at risk of eviction with nowhere to go. And we're working right now with the tenants from Ridgeview Place and Langford that have been evicted, and a lot of those households, there just isn't rental stock available. Um, so uh, as we see that happening, we know that there needs to be a lot more collaboration around leveraging funding, and the municipal governments are landed with all of the social issues related to, that fall out from the housing crisis without the funds to really address them. Mm-hmm. And so really, that's where the collaboration really needs to happen, is um, seeing the federal and provincial governments working with the municipalities really proactively to enable them to leverage other levels of funding um, to to open up the door for, for more balanced supply. Okay, that, you raised a really interesting point um, that often isn't talked about. We've often talked about kind of the tangle and the mess and the bureaucracy, but perhaps not enough about the bold vision um, that's needed. Uh, Julian, when we uh, talked earlier, um, you talked about policies affecting housing that are frozen in time. Can you talk about it a bit more? How do we get unfrozen? Yeah. And, and even just thinking about the Gordon and Nod example, um, I, I think in a lot of ways it's it feels really complex, but actually like a lot of the solutions are quite simple. Um, and, and what we've done is made it complex. And as an example, uh, this this project I'm working on right now, uh, we spent a couple months working with staff to calculate the amount of soil that was going to be under the trees. And we might have to do blasting of rock to make sure there's enough soil. And we need an arborist to watch the tree go in and make sure that soil is there. It's like, that's and that's one tree, right? And it's like every aspect about the design, and that's how it stretches out for years and years sometimes. Honestly, we need to get out of the weeds, right? Um, and, the, you know, the city of Victoria, Saanich, they have dozens and dozens of staff that work in these departments, putting in thousands of hours. Like each housing public hearing and proposal, the amount of work that goes into it, it's like, you know, each report's like 100 pages. They build these 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 new documents and these new plans around transportation and housing and each one of those is like 150 pages like we're talking about so much work and complexity going into like all of these things and it's like actually getting in the way of housing not helping housing get built and one of the things that's interesting that gives me some hope from the province is that they're saying look we should be treating you know small-scale multifamily housing like townhouses and stuff like we treat a single-family home use the same process Right. And if if people can build a single family home by just getting a building permit, no soil calculations, no jumping through 100 hoops and that's OK. And the world, the sky hasn't fallen. Then we can do that for townhouses. We can do that for house houseplexes. We can do that for more affordable f- forms of housing. Right. And it's like that's actually simple. That, that's much simpler. It saves everyone time. It, it causes everyone less headache. So I think a lot of the solutions are actually just like de- uh, decomplicating things. Um, and in fact, um, you know, mu- almost every single municipality in our region says in their official community plan that they want all these things. They've articulated this vision. They've been at the microphone. All we really need to do is change our policies to let those plans go into place. Right. Um, do what we say what we're going to do. So it's actually just it's just follow through that we need. Okay. Um and on the low income um, side of the market, that's the harder that's the harder side, right? That's where like the dollars and cents is a real struggle. That's where 
Uh, we do need financing from higher levels of government. Um, but that's where I think we should be redirecting staff's time to, right? Like let them, let them roll out the red carpet, uh, for that really badly needed housing. Um, use excess municipal land for it. Um, um, just take away fees, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's honestly like un, unfreezing the housing system is okay. just simplifying it. Just simplifying it, like, okay. like, like, make everyone's life easier. Set, set high standards, right? And be really clear about what those are and just let it happen. Okay. Very interesting. And so Can beyond that, um, to that around, um, interestingly, yeah. uh, another thing we hear from the, the housing providers that we work with is, um, that delays aren't, aren't just around the policy, but it's also in the practice. So there's a lack of, so when we talk about coordination of levels of government, we also have to have better coordination within the municipal governments. So you'll have a department say, you need to put a tree over there. And then somebody will say, oh, now that you put a tree there, you have to, you know, you have to put a bench there or you have to take that out because that's too close to the tree or, um, you know, parking is, is something that, that, that can create, you know, significant expense. So, so each of those pieces, um, are different departments and moving around between departments, uh, within planning and lack of coordination around planning can be also a challenge and cause delays. So one of the things that the non-private housing providers have asked for their leadership group, um, has asked for is that they create a portal through what, where you've got one individual that's kind of brokering it so that you don't end up with a bunch of different conflicting things or being punted between departments. So certainly coordination, uh, between levels of government and then within government around how we're implementing. So, um, streamlining housing approvals doesn't necessarily mean deregulation or reducing safety, even uh-huh. building code. Um, standards. Uh, it just means that ensuring that those are really clear and that we, do, we reduce the inequity between how those are applied to single family homes versus higher density. Right. Um, okay. And, you know, we could talk, there's so many areas we could go into here. I mean, you know, should we blame the Bank of Canada for years of low interest rates? Should we, you know, blame COVID, NIMBYism, supply chain issues, cost of materials? I think all of those are a factor. But ultimately, um, what I'd like to do is um, talk about what is working and what is possible. What, how do we, let, let's flip the conversation and um, focus on where we're going. You've already said, you know, some of the things that we need to do, but I'd like to explore that more. So I'm going to start, uh, Diana, why don't we start with you? And um, let's talk about if you, if you could wave a magic wand, <laughs> what would happen? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's so hard because there's no single answer. We are putting out a toolkit that's going to be published soon for municipal governments around all the different levers for affordable housing. I remember hearing a lot during the recent municipal elections, um, individuals and municipal <clears throat> candidates saying, you know, well, this is, we don't have the, we don't have the means to address this situation. This is a provincial or federal issue. They have the money. And so really uh, ensuring that people are aware of where municipalities can engage in housing affordability and also where they're unintentionally um, costing on housing affordability. So there's a lot of places where they'll have housing policy that they're not aware is actually creating significant cost factors for, for affordability. So we've created a toolkit that will be coming out soon that really goes through the different levers they can use and that they have at their disposal um, to accelerate and um, and address affordability both in market and non-market housing. Um, and then, so certainly I think that there are a lot of tools and places where we can do a lot better at the municipal government level. Um, and then as 
uh, Julian mentioned, and as we've talked about a little bit earlier, really um, the scale of the number of units we're talking about getting built in the region is so disproportionate to the need. Um, mm-hmm. So really starting to talk about our gap. Um, in a realistic way and what it's going to take to close that gap. And um, one of the big challenges in, and, you know, Julian tries to build affordable, um, uh, you know, as affordable as possible, family-oriented housing, which we need in the city desperately. Um, and yet, you know, land costs, for example, are, are such a huge impediment to getting market housing that's affordable, but also non-market housing. So more creative ways to um, address that in density certainly does help reduce the cost per unit of, of housing. Um, and we need to look at density more broadly all the way across our, our region and accept that we're a world-class city that needs to, to, to not try and behave like a, a you know, like we're a, a suburban um region, but that we actually are a world-class city. Tech has outstripped tourism as the biggest sector in Victoria. Um, we need places where uh, tech sector folks can live. We need folks, places where families can live. Um, our housing, we had a housing um, policy researcher that was working on addressing um, uh, housing concerns that left because they said to me, Diana, we don't see a future here for us as we grow our family. And they they left and moved to Alberta where they could get um, a home. And, uh, you know, we can't even attract and retain people to tackle the housing crisis. And the same goes, of course, with the construction sector. So that's where the scale of the crisis, we need to leverage every strategy we have, market, non-market, um, and every tool in our toolbox. And that's what addressing this as a crisis looks like. Okay. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who say there's nowhere for people to live. So why don't we just close the doors? I mean, why, why build then more people? But my my thing is where where do the nurses live? Where do the construction workers live that we we so desperately need? Where do the doctor? Where do people live? So it's not as simple as just saying, "Hey, we're not going to build more because we don't want more people." That's just not practical, is well, it? We also have the biggest gap, I think, in 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 Canada uh, in birth uh, to death rates. Um, and the lowest fertility rate. And so if we were to close the door, our aging population would, be, would quickly become a very big crisis for the region. And our whole standard of living is predicated on economic growth. And it's driven. Like, we distribute income through economic growth. Mm-hmm. And unless we fundamentally change the way we operate our economy, we will need growth. And to have growth, we need population growth. Um, and in our region, that means we need to move beyond replacement and into growth and we already have a significant gap um, in population replacement alone but also a significant portion of the people immigrating into our region are retirement age so we also have an aging demographic of the newcomers coming in so we really need to have a growth strategy and a housing strategy that focuses on building housing for workers and families um, not just high-end retirement um, homes and and that is going to be um, we won't be getting workers and families if we don't have the housing they need, and we won't have the housing we need if we don't intentionally build it, um, and then if we build it, they will come, or at least they will stay. Exactly, and, you know, um, I'm just going to uh, move to Julian for a minute. Um, I'd like, same question to you, but I'd, I'd also like to talk to you about a lot of people um, are afraid of density. Um, it seems to be a dirty word, yet most people are saying, you know, we need the density. I mean, we have limited land. Um, so I know that, you know, you're always thinking about how 
homes and developments fit into neighborhoods, you know? Um, and I think, why are people so scared of density? Are we just not seeing enough examples of good density here? Because when I've traveled in Europe or the U.S., Dense places can be absolutely fascinating and very attractive, and they're not always tall towers. Um, so I guess a multifaceted question for you, Julian. That is a tough one. We probably have a whole webinar on, on, on that alone. It, like, it is honestly, like, I think, like, the cultural and psychological component of development is is this kind of, like, huge undercurrent that we touch on and, like, never quite get a grasp on. Yeah. And something I think quite a bit about, we, we actually spend a huge amount of time uh, doing like engagement in our projects and doing webinars and bringing guest speakers and just being available and trying to communicate the vision. And actually one call to action I would send to all municipalities is, is take ownership of your vision and direction of your municipality and communicate that to your constituents, right? Like have a vision and like, and communicate it over and over and over and over have signs at bus stops, have billboards, like have like webinars, have like, like get that vision out there and help like really socialize it with people. Like I said before, like almost every single community plan uh, that our region has talks about, you know, compact communities and sustainable transportation, all these kind of things. And like the direction we all know academically and from like like a scientific standpoint, like the direction we need to go, but they haven't taken ownership of that. And and that was that's one thing. It's a leadership question. Mm. And and municipalities need to take the reins on that and and I think run with it. Um and to kind of build on that, uh very much new density and development is not a bad thing. We can create more healthy, more happy, more sustainable, uh more inclusive communities if we are intentional about it. Right? Mm. And and we actually know how to do that. We've got really good examples around the world um, where we've got good examples around our region of, of how to do it as well. Uh, we actually have got like a really good game plan on, on what that looks like. Um, I, I We just need to kind of execute on it. So it's, you know, I would say that that common vision that's emerging more and more. And I think there is um, there's definitely alignment um from like an urban planner's perspective, there's okay. definitely an alignment when people are thinking about climate action and so forth okay. um, and think about smart growth. And there's just, there's a whole sort of like sort of academic uh, research component to that. Uh, but I think the, the general public is, is, is there's this growing awareness around 15 minute communities, right? So like every neighborhood should have uh, like a little village center, like think about like Fernwood village and Cook street village and Estevan village where within a 15 minute walk, you can get most of your goods and services. And we're connecting these little villages through transit and safe cycling infrastructure. We surround them in compact forms of housing. And as a baseline, we're talking like townhouses and houseplexes and low-rise apartments, pockets of higher density. But as a baseline, um, and that level of density, it has this virtuous effect where, you know, you need a critical mass to have good transit, right? So that's that's a people equation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a certain number of people, that makes businesses thrive. If you have a certain number of people, well, then the parks are full and they're vibrant, right? You create this this tax base in which you can fund like really great public um, amenities, right? Like parks and good sidewalks and all these kind of things. Like this, this is a a healthier, happier, uh, more vibrant, and more sustainable future. And we know how to do that. We have that game plan. We just need to follow through with it. And I think that more than anything, that's a leadership question. So it comes back to that vision again. Yeah. I very think so. interesting. And, and, and I would say 
so when, when we talk about like people haven't quite taken this crisis as a crisis yet, I would say the city of Victoria is, uh, they give me a lot of hope. I, I think they're starting to sort of just hit that turning point. where like, okay, we're serious about this. We're going to make some, some real changes now. Um, like it's, it's still early days. Uh, but I, I think we're starting to flip the switch and what I'm starting to hear from the province gives me optimism that, that they're serious about it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're starting to see things like investment in BC Transit in a way that's like actually of substance. Um, and we're, mo- we're moving in the right direction. I feel like we're, we're close to, to flipping the switch. Well, it, it's kind of interesting because the one thing I think about is, you know, what the pandemic proved was that when human beings want to get moving in a direction and take action, the capacity is there to do it. So it's kind of like lighting a fire under, right? Um, And I mean, like anybody, maybe we all just only respond when it's a crisis, but for housing, it's a crisis. Um, And um, I think, Diana, we were talking about the residents displaced from um, the the Langford um, high rise um, that, uh, has been they've been evacuated for the second time in four years and you were saying at one time this may have been personally not great for them but it wouldn't have been a housing crisis trying to scramble to find homes Uh, is that correct do I have that correct well just think about I mean if we had a a normal vacancy rate it would have been um, it would have been easy to help folks find new places uh, Mm -hmm. that are appropriate and, and, and affordable um, and within this current housing environment, and we see the same with the rent bank. As I said, we have households at higher and higher income coming in to us <clears throat> in crisis because, first off, they're paying so much more of their income on housing than they would have in the past because what we've seen, of course, is um, without any control on the cost or increases when there's vacancies, we see uh, a big premium on a unit that becomes vacant. The rent just goes way higher. So it's yeah. like, you know, three, three or $400 premium to, to, to on a unit that becomes vacant. So anytime you relocate, you not only do you face the, the, the stress and challenge of moving, but you often face a significantly higher rent. Um, so that's what we're seeing in, in households that they've been squeezed at the existing rent and then relocating puts them into jeopardy. I've never so seen that's a housing crisis and that's lack of vacancies. Like that's, that's just not having enough, uh, not having a balanced supply and appropriate stock and enough stock. Yeah, Can I, I quick, quickly add something to that? Um, oh, sure, yeah. there's, there's a big study that was recently completed in the States and it looked at all of the possible drivers of homelessness. Um, and it's a very comprehensive study and they found by far the number one closest association was lack of housing was the driver of homelessness and they actually found an inverse relationship between poverty and homelessness. So hmm. San Francisco, which has a major housing crisis, but it is the wealthiest um, jurisdiction in North America um, has, has a terrible homelessness problem. But if you go to Detroit, which has really high uh, poverty, they have a very low homelessness problem because hmm. they, they don't, they don't have a, a booming economy. They don't have a shortage of housing. It's, it's like, what is the impact of being uh, low income or in poverty, right? If there's ample housing supply for you to be able to move into, then there's, there's somewhere for you to land. When I first moved to Victoria, I rented a $400 a month, uh, little like shoebox in an attic of an old, uh, character house, right? Yeah. Like that $400 like shoebox doesn't exist anymore. And that was perfect for me coming out of university, right? But we just, we don't have that option anymore. So when people do get placed, there's, there's nowhere for them to land. And as Diana said, like their rent can double or triple sometimes. And people exactly. are just saying, I'm out. I can't do it. 
You know, it's it's very stressful. I mean, monitoring social media, knowing people, um, even people who have good jobs and that if um, they suddenly um, they're renovicted or something. I mean, the stress of it is just horrible on people and families. Kathy, I know you and uh, your members um, have lots of ideas about what's working, but what we need to implement for solutions to move forward. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, so there's there's a few things that the municipalities are doing, um, uh, Victoria in particular, um, where they delegate uh, approvals to staff instead of going to council. Um, that really, really helps. Um, you know, there's obviously a tipping point where too much goes to staff and they can't work on other other applications, but but, you know, when they're, they're smaller applications that could be quick and dirty and just out the door, then, you know, that's a great thing. Um, and the province bringing in, uh, the no need for public hearings if they, uh, apply or, or coincide with the OCP. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that untangles the, the process. Um, it shortens the timeline, um, which means it costs less money. So, you know, all of these, these little things, and those are that, like Julian was talking about, those are the, the, the low hanging fruit that can be done right away. There are a lot of things that can be done right away. Um, if you could depoliticize almost the, the, the process, um, the application process. Um, the province also put in the housing needs report, which holds now, holds municipalities responsible for the amount of housing that, that they're supposed to build. Um, and the province is coming out with, I think, 10 um, municipalities that they're going to target that aren't meeting their targets. Um, and there's going to be consequences. And that's, you know, that that's reality. And that's the way that life works. If you don't do something, if you do something wrong, there should be a consequence for it. So um, and, and another thing that the city of Victoria has brought in is the rapid deployment of affordable housing mm-hmm. for UDI. We. A lot of our members are the nonprofit builders, um, and we hear from them that they have to go through the same process that developers do when they're trying to bring forward this affordable housing. Um, and really, they should be fast-tracked. That's one thing. Another low-hanging fruit that can be done, just fast-track these, these um, um, affordable housing uh, providers. Yeah. Um, and partnerships that are taking place, UDI, the, the members here are, are developing partnerships with faith groups that have a lot of land. Uh, First Nations, uh, we're working with First Nations more. Um, so, you know, these partnerships, when, when everybody, when people come together and work together, it, it works just like we were had a conversation earlier about the silos that the municipality, Diana brought this in, uh, about the silos that even the municipalities have within their departments. You know, the, the parks isn't talking to the planning department, to the permitting department. So, you know, when everybody comes together and works together, that's, that's where solutions are, are solved. It's kind of interesting. Can I jump in on that partnership um, comment? Because I think that's uh, another piece that we've been seeing regionally that's really exciting. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Dalmatian building that just got built, but it, it was where the, the city was commissioning the building of a, a new fire hall. And um, uh, and then there was an interesting collaboration where they put housing on top of the fire hall, and it's both market and non-market, but it's mixed. So there isn't any kind of segmentation or stratification. Um, and BC Housing stepped in to help with the financing of the of the building of the housing. 
Um, and then the municipality was commissioning the building of the fire hall, and, and there was a private developer that had the land. And so the partnership between the municipality, the private developer, BC Housing, and a nonprofit developer that's going to operate the social part of the housing um, <clears throat> created this building. And I, I see a lot of potential where we, we are short amenities across regions, particularly like Colwood and Langford that have grown really quickly and need to get some mm-hmm. amenities caught up. There's the potential to do housing on top of those. And then you can leverage your land costs with your combination of amenities, social housing and market housing, um, and get that balanced supply moving forward. Um, another great collaboration uh, is one where the developer and the city and a nonprofit housing provider collaborated where the developer got more density in exchange for donating a chunk of land that the nonprofit provider can then put a building on. Because as I mentioned, that land cost for the nonprofit, you know, to build affordable housing, the biggest cost, of course, is the land per unit. Um, so they, they, that, creative collaboration to leverage free land for a nonprofit housing provider by the city brokering um, with the with the developer. And I think uh, hopefully we'll see some amenities come into that one as well. So to me, those creative partnerships, we, we you know, as much as we need provincial and federal investment in the right. in building supply, as I said, we need to leverage everything we have and creative solutions. That's also part of a taking a crisis approach is how can we work together in every way to creatively leverage more supply and a more balanced supply. Well, that's interesting. Um, I want to bring in some of our audience members right now um, because there's some good questions. Um, There's a question here from Bob. The reality, he says, is that both quality rental and owner-occupied housing is unaffordable by between 20 and 40 percent of CRD residents, mostly young people and families. Before 1993, co-op housing was an important major part of the federal policy program. Co-op housing is still the best option for addressing this housing crisis. Does this panel see this as having potential in this region and province? Um, who'd like to take that one? I can I can jump yeah. in here with this because um, I'm happy to let the other two jump in here as well. Because mm-hmm. I, I looked at this quite closely. So when I was looking at starting Urban Thrive, uh, my original concept was like, how can I how can I like mass produce co-op housing? Uh, and it turns out it's super hard, uh, super hard. And uh, a lot of it comes down to financing. Um, so the co-op housing we have today and why it's like so awesome and so affordable is because it was built like 40 years ago, right? <laughs> building new co-op housing costs the same as building like like strata, new strata housing and new rental housing. And you don't leverage the savings until you're like decades down the road. So in terms of getting us like out of the housing crisis today, it's actually like not that much of a solution and super hard to finance. So a bank will look at a co-op and, and like, they're like, who are we lending to, right? Who's going to hold this mortgage? And it's only as good as like the current board is that the co-op has at the time. And for a bank, that's not secure enough. So, um, I think it's who is it the provincial organization kathy might know this the community land uh like the provincial organization that um basically helps co-ops with financing and so forth so co-ops are very much part of the puzzle they're an important piece but like we're not going to see major advances in affordability by building them today that's like a long-term play and definitely part of the puzzle um and um we have to look at a suite of solutions, right? And, and honestly, it's, it's like some of the basic stuff, like get the vacancy rate up, right? Give, give people housing choice, right? We jack rents up, we jack prices up when people don't have a choice and they have to basically fork out their whole paycheck um, or decide to leave the, the city. Like that's the fundamental question we need, uh, we need to do, address. 
I think co-op housing, too, would be uh, a good solution for it, would be these partnerships that take place. So the province, the municipalities, they have lands. So, you know, create partnerships with the developers, give the lands, and and developers could build the build the housing on the land. Yeah, and the reality is we're not going to get out of the housing crisis with simply, and, and even Scotiabank has said this, with only market housing, we need purpose-built social and nonprofit housing. So the co-ops in the past, co-ops have been a very big part of that. When we had balanced supply and we had a, a appropriate amounts of affordable housing, it was because we had a big, co-ops were a big player in that. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, where co-ops, even if they need to be built, a little bit more expensive now, and that will require government subsidy and creative um, access to land. Um, the The reality is that they can manage households not having to pay more than 30% of their income on housing, which private private um, supply won't do. And that was a big part of why we had a balanced supply and affordable housing is in co-op housing, it's geared to income. And there are other countries that have much, much more of their housing stock designed as stock geared to income. So, as I said, when we have a household coming into the rent bank that's paying, that's higher income, the reality is they're paying 50 or 70% of their income on housing. So, although they're higher income, they're actually, they have very, relatively little disposable income. And if they have a family, they don't actually have the cushion to manage a crisis. So, they'll have a workplace injury, a death in the family, uh, somebody, you know, somebody gets ill, and suddenly they are operating with no cushion, even though they're higher income. So, if you have housing that's geared to saying you can't pay more than 30% of your income on housing, if you have enough stock that does that, then you can be able to manage where we're not in this kind of crisis again. So certainly, I think affordable uh, uh, the affordable housing hinges on both nonprofit and co-op housing and the role of co-op housing. Um, as Julian said, there's some challenges, and I think we need to call our government out for there is definitely unfair treatment. I've, I've, I've founded co-ops in the past, and there's unfair treatment of co-ops around things like capital gains or tax treatment and um, finance access. I know some of the banks right now are really looking at changing that. So Van City, for example, has been leaning into saying, how can we better endorse and support finance access? Um, <clears throat> similarly, co-housing is a creative solution we need to talk a lot more about too. For young people wanting to buy and build housing, if there's co-housing initiatives, they can reduce that land value significantly per unit. Um, but again, there's very cha big challenges around access to financing and, and um, regulation and, and administration. So uh, I, I think we shouldn't write co-ops out of the equation just because currently our financing system penalizes um, them and makes it challenging. Um, and I think that we we, we actually uh, all have a responsibility to, to call that out and get a more balanced access to financing. If I could just add one one piece here around that relationship between market and non-market housing. Um, like right now, our supply of non-market housing is, is so small. I think it's like 3% of housing stock in Canada, like 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 peanuts, right? Um, so like whenever we build new like non-market housing, like we're catching just a tiny percentage of the population, right? And there's and there's actually a bit of a um, an equity component around who gets who gets that shelter. And who doesn't? And, and co-ops are actually a, a big part of that thing, right? Like when a, when a spot opens up in a co-op, who gets it, right? It's like gold, right? Um, where we need to get to is where the non-market housing sector is so big, it's competing with the market housing sector, right? Like that's where we need to get to, where it starts to influence price on market housing, where someone's like, oh, I could qualify for a co-op over here, or I can buy my own thing over here. And they start making purchasing decisions based on that. Like that's where we need to get to. And that's like, like that's a radical shift from where we're at today. Um, but like, I think that's where the non-market housing 
uh, sector begins to influence the entire housing market and all of our uh, housing choices. Okay. Yeah, and I, we need to talk about what a healthy vacancy rate is, and that's where I think currently our our supply, like when when um, I think Kathy was talking about sort of the housing needs and the targets. Um, the scale of numbers people are talking about are still out of line with what we need to get to supply. Where, as you're saying, Julian, where the, we're in the non-market and market where we have that four percent vacancy rate or whatever it is. So we mm-hmm. need to talk about what is a healthy vacancy rate. What do we need in order to be actually insuring? And so then we would have, if we had a building where there was a fire or where the building was deemed structurally unsound, we would be able to take 150 tenants and relocate them into appropriate housing. So you need surplus supply. You need adequate supply to manage not just existing need, but growth and then also emergency need. Right. That's important. I want to roll into the next question here um, because it is it is a uh, goes to financing. Um, the question is about BC investment. Uh, BCI. Yeah. BC investment. Um, from an anonymous attendee, I rarely hear or see references to BCI and their pension funds and the role that this massive capital partner could play as an intermediary. There could be financing co-developments, providing financing for smaller developers, et cetera, et cetera, while still making decent returns for their pension clients who, by the way, are BC residents and would also gain. Why aren't they involved? I, I don't know that they are or aren't. And how do we get them to be? Any thoughts on this? We're talking about the BC Pension Corp Investment Fund. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know if I have much to that add was, to that. Like, I, 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 so. mostly pension funds are investing in things like Starlight. Quite frankly, like big developments. We're talking about huge dollar amounts. Um, I'd say generally, it's really hard for small developers to get financing. Um, and tap into government programs, any kind of these big sort of pots of money. Uh, like generally, like the overhead is so high. Um, and like just the administrative burden is so high and they're looking for like hundreds of units and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's like if there's a mismatch in how financing works in Canada today between like incremental development, um, and accessing these sort of like big pots of money and stuff. So I'm, I, I certainly haven't seen uh, pension um, invest, investment trusts sort of lean into this space very much except for oh. a large scale. And I think just ask the asking of the question suggests that maybe um, some people are wondering, gee, should there be, you know, a different approach, you know, to assist housing? Um, There's an opportunity there, though. Yeah, an opportunity. It's because of the housing crisis where a lot of investors lost their shirts. Um, it's um, it's now considered uh, risky to do. You know, the REITs will be heavily in there because the return, the short, short, um, the turns, returns are quick in the short term, but the pension funds are looking for sort of longer term, slightly lower risk. So uh, that's been so they, they they backed off after the housing crisis uh, and started coming back in. Um, but that sort of long-term risk uh, ratio um, and the sort of conversation around bubbles has been challenging. I think that the question's great, though, because as we shift to looking at a different kind of supply and we're looking at purpose-built co-op and um, and other types of, of market and non-market collaborations, those are places where I think you would have a more secure investment than sort of REITs investing in, in, in flipping buildings and single family homes. So the sort of the quick flip, quick dollar is a very risky place to be in the market. But long term balance supply um, is a is a safe place. So it might be interesting to see if there's different risk ratings around how the market's being designed and, and where money could go and help build 
that stall. That's interesting. One more question, and I just want, I'll take your closing thoughts on this. Um, Another person has asked, um, how do we convince leaders that this is a crisis without yelling at them? LOL. Um, So how do we, how do we up the ante? Do you think they know it's a crisis and feel stuck or let's, let's answer and go out on a note. How do we convince leaders of what is needed? Kathy? I think we need, oh, I think we need okay, to yeah. people. Yeah. Sorry. Does somebody else want to jump in? Okay. Go ahead. I think we need more young people talking about their challenges because I think a lot of the policymakers and individuals who are sitting around the tables where decisions are being made and not necessarily behaving like there's a crisis might not fully understand the scale of the crisis. And mm-hmm. sometimes the numbers don't really talk. And so we could show the, we could show that gap, the investment gap, the housing stock gap, the fact that we have the lowest stock in the G7. We can say those things. But until someone stands in front of them and tells them this is what it means, until they see a whole generation leaving the city um, or, or, or despairing of their futures. Um, and so I think that that it, it's really become a generational divide in a lot of ways. It makes me quite sad. Um, around the policy tables versus the folks that are really impacted. So I think better having a conversation around what this really means. And then also I think having that conversation around you can't just close the door like you got in, you've got your place. And the idea is like, let's just stop growth. We're good. I'm good. We're happy. Let's just stop it all here. We've got it going well. Like I think really having conversations about the reality of our our aging demographic, our aging immigration population and the need and what, how can we run a community that way? Um, so those are two conversations that I think we need to humanize the conversation and destigmatize it a bit. Great points, Kathy. Um, yeah, just just to build on that, I, I agree. I think there's some education that needs to be done um, for the and and the council members and the municipalities um, to get away from their own agendas and to look at the community as a whole. Um, and, and to help the, the community groups understand density is not, uh, you know, a, a dirty word. It actually, like Julian explained, it actually creates density can be built properly and can create these great vibrant, uh, communities. And, and I think really, I think if we were able to, um, educate people to understand that, I think we wouldn't have so much pushback on the missing middle kind of policy initiatives that are brought in. Great. And so, Julian, you get the last word. Oh, goody. Um, I think it. We're, we're still not treating it like a crisis because uh, it's being felt unevenly. For some people, it is a crisis. It's very real. And for others, they don't feel it at all. And in fact, for some people, it's the best thing that ever financially happened to them quite frankly, right? It's the unevenness of impact, which means like why we haven't taken it serious. Um, and I think what can we do about it? I think show up like people who are impact, show up, share your voice, like come to council meetings, tell them, tell them what you think even better run for office, right? Like we're, we're starting to see um, people step up to municipal councils and actually like sit in the seat and start making decisions. So like we saw that in the last round of elections, I think we're just going to keep seeing more of that. Uh, and we're starting to see people like students from UVic have been more motivated than than ever showing up at council meetings. Uh, we've got a lot of grassroots groups that have just been popping up and, and sharing their voice. And that's what's going to move the needle. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I want to point out, too, that I don't think any of you is suggesting that all of the problems lie at the municipal level, um, that we need to those multiple levels of government to all be working on this together. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I'd love to have you all back in the fall and, and let's look at where we are then. Um, I want to thank Diana. Kathy and Julian for helping us gain some real clarity into the important issues around us. Um, If you would like to watch this panel again or share it with others, we will be posting it to our YouTube channel and we'll email you to let you know where you can watch a recording of it. I also want to point out that um, for May, we're moving to Czech Studios and we're going to be talking uh, to a number of experts on why, why child care is an economic development priority and why we should all care. So you can sign up for our newsletter at southislandprosperity.ca and um, you'll find out about all of our podcasts for Rising Economy. Thank you all for being here. Very grateful for your time. Have a good day.